Look at all the wonderful things you have, Mr. Burns. King Arthur's Excalibur, the only existing nude photo of Mark Twain, and that rare first draft of the Constitution with the word suckers in it. Yes, yes, yes. So what? everyone and welcome back to Ear Read This, a podcast providing detailed introductions to great works of literature. My name's Ash and today I will be enchanting away like a beaver to spirit us back to the 6th century, there to talk about a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. This novel was published in 1889, so on our way back in time we'll be making a stop there to talk about Twain, typewriters and late 19th century America. From there, we push on another 1,300 years to King Arthur's court. Now, in our previous episodes on Arthurian literature, we've seen the court as imagined by medieval poets, and we've also seen the childhood of King Arthur, courtesy of T.H. White. Although White satirised the homicidal impulses of chivalric societies, the once and future king, and in particular the sword in the stone, treats Arthur and his mentor Merlin with native affection. It is a fleshing out of the Arthurian legends, written, as it were, from within the fold. Arthur's tragedy, what White called his regular Greek doom, is enriched with a 20th century psychological depth. Mark Twain was also moved by the description of King Arthur's death he found in Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur, calling it one of the most beautiful things ever written in English, and written when we had no vocabulary. While Twain's novel is also a comic interpretation of the stories of Arthur and Merlin, It is one emphatically written, as the title indicates, from an outsider's perspective. Where writers like Tennyson, Walter Scott and John Macefield sought to preserve and revivify these legends as the crown jewel of British literature, Twain's novel was marketed in posters as a book that appeals to all true Americans. Through his wily protagonist, Hank Morgan, Twain imports to 6th century Britain American opportunism, Yankee wit and technological enterprise. Infiltrating the nostalgic dream of green old England, Twain found it usefully embodied several of his favourite enemies. Monarchy, organised religion, slavery and the stultifying influence of chivalric literature. Twain had already tilted at combining modern America and medieval culture in a short piece called The Tournament AD 1870. Twenty years before the publication of The Yankee, Twain already had the absurdity of chivalry as romanticised by the likes of Walter Scott in his sights. His hero, Hank Morgan, with a name befitting an opponent of Arthurian romance, aims to demystify the work of despotic enchanters and allow the subservient to recover their imaginations. But as Twain himself said, power cannot be so righteously placed that it will neglect to exercise its great speciality, oppression. And so even the dream of enlightened and well-intentioned Hank ends in havoc. Today we will look at why that happens and take in a range of critical reactions to the novel, from the amusingly horrified English critics of the time, to more recent and moderate critics who measure up the explosive glories and failures of both Hank and Mark Twain. A very early response to a Connecticut Yankee is recorded in the New York Herald, three years before the book was even published. All Governor's Island laughed last night. A bristle-haired Connecticut Yankee lectured in King Arthur's court and sketched the knights of the round table with a master hand. Mark Twain was the speaker. The lecture was a succession of pictures interspersed with epigrams, jokes and witticisms, alternately drawled and fired as if from a Gatling gun. (laughs) 
Okay, back to King Arthur. Yeah, it feels like it feels like it's been a while. Well, it has, yeah, and an interesting route that we're taking this time. Yeah. Um, via 19th century America, courtesy of Mr. Twain. I wanted to ask you before we um, get into Arthury stuff. Mm-hmm. What had you read of Mark Twain? Did you think of Mark Twain? And uh, is your perception of Mr. Twain before now? Because we haven't ever mentioned him on the podcast, I don't think. I think my perception of Mark Twain has been, I read Huckleberry Finn when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, I just know him as a very early troll. He seems to have spent the majority of his life taking the piss out of people. And I think some of his stuff has actually lasted the test of time. He's a very funny man. But I can honestly say I've not really read all that much of his stuff apart from Huckleberry Finn and now this one. Um, I was reading that he predicted he, he was born as Haley's Comet passed by. I think oh, that's so and him he predicted I will die when Haley's comic next passes by in sort of 75 years and he did to the night oh my god yeah. didn't 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 Shakespeare die on his birthday or something Shakespeare's supposed to have died on his birthday yeah. tradition has it yeah Fame, famous um, men and their death days also Mark Twain said a, a a brilliant quote about I mean he wrote a book about Shakespeare but he um he said of Shakespeare that his biography is like two or three dinosaur bones and six tons of plaster of Paris, which has been a lasting, a lasting quote for biographers and, and people trying to prod at who Shakespeare was. Well, didn't he also, um, he started the rumour, he started a rumour that I think actually still pops up every now and again, that mm. the British Empire burnt mummies that they excavated in Egypt as train fuel. Really? Yeah, and I think I've seen that a couple of times. People have cited it as a real fact, but it's actually a... A Twainism. Mark Twain started. Yeah, it's got a fantastic uh, mischievous spirit. This book, I, I, I'd never read it. I know you'd read it ages ago, but I, I'd never read it before. Oh, I read it. Yeah, I read it ages ago. It's uh, one of our eerie the specialties, really, uh, in that it's a, it's a, it's a tale within a tale. It's a tale told, as so many Robert Louis Stevenson short stories and H.G. Wells novels that we've talked about um, are. The the original narrator is told the real novel by a, a secondary character. Oh, another great eerie this trademark. Uh, he he's been coshed on the head and travelled back in time. Yeah, he's got 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 on a big cosh. Time travelling by coshing, out of straight out of the Philip Marlowe book. This is another one that's credited with being one of the first time travel stories. As we discussed on our first episode of this series of podcasts. The innovation H.G. Wells brought to the time travel genre was his machine. Instead of falling asleep like Rip Van Winkle or being thrown through time by supernatural forces, the protagonist in Wells' novel is at the wheel, or rather, the lever. He is a chronic argonaut, controlling his travels through time. And while Twain's hero travels not by machine but head trauma, Connecticut Yankee is still considered a founding father in the time travel genre. In fact, it inaugurated a subgenre of stories and novels about people marooned in time and compelled to adapt themselves to survive, or in Hank's case, flourish. Hank wastes no time in exploiting his 13th century head start on the people around him. Passing off his knowledge and technological inventions as magic, he rises to power very quickly. And since he can't get home, he attempts instead to bring the future to him. I had schemes in my head which were the vastest of all my projects. The one was to overthrow the Catholic Church and set up the Protestant faith on its ruins. 
not as an established church, but a go-as-you-please one. And the other project was to get a decree issued by and by commanding that upon Arthur's death, unlimited suffrage should be introduced and given to men and women alike. At any rate, to all men, wise or unwise, and to all mothers who at middle age should be found to know nearly as much as their sons at 21. Incidentally, Twain shrugged off but implicitly admitted charges that he based a Connecticut Yankee on a novella by Max Adler, the pseudonym of Charles Heber Clark. The pertinent story was published as The Fortunate Island, but appeared earlier under the title Professor Baffin's Adventures. In it, the professor and his daughter are shipwrecked on a journey to Liverpool and wash up on an unknown island populated with primitive Arthurian people. David Ketterer tells us that as the story unfolds, Baffin, like Hank Morgan, in a series of generally comic situations and experiences, makes use of his 19th century knowledge and attitudes to confound, delight, outwit, and improve the state of the island's medieval inhabitants. Both Baffin and Hank's 19th century technology are confused with magic. Both end up challenged by Sir Sagramore, and both are transported by blows to the head. Hank back in time, Baffin back to reality. In a detailed comparison of the two works, Ketterer shows how even Twain's initial idea for the Yankee may have been influenced by his reading of Adler's work. At one point, Baffin, kitted out in medieval armour, says he feels like a cooking stove. And in Twain's famous first reference to his future novel, in his notebooks, he writes of having a dream of being a knight errant in armour in the Middle Ages. Have the notions and habits of thought of the present day mixed with the necessities of nature. Can't scratch. Cold in the head. Can't blow. Can't get at handkerchief. Can't use iron sleeve. Iron gets red hot in the sun. Leaks in the rain. Gets white with frost and freezes me solid in winter. Suffer from lice and fleas. Make a disagreeable clatter when I enter church. Can't dress or undress myself. Always getting struck by lightning. Fall down. Can't get up. See Mort D'Arthur. Despite the plentiful similarities of detail, the much shorter adventures of Professor Baffin are of a gentler humour than the Yankee, whose every move is energised by the need to demystify suppressive superstition and arcane dogma. Hank's impatience is demonstrated from the get-go. Meeting the page, Clarence, he says, you ain't more than a paragraph. His grand projects to overthrow the Catholic Church, to introduce suffrage and to go discover America are interrupted before Hank can achieve them, but they allow us to imagine what kind of success he might have had. Would it really be a homecoming for Hank if he discovered America in the 6th century? According to Lee Clark Mitchell, the clash, staged by a present that paradoxically precedes its own past, is matched by a series of other clashes of large binary oppositions, of reality and dream, life and reminiscence, free agency and training or habit, even time and space, all staged in the novel as conflicts between potentially linear and circular modes. So the linear intrusion of Hank disrupts the circular mode of life among the knights of the table round. The famous characters of these loose, repetitious tales are rudely put into order by the upstart Yank, who finds their way of life stagnant and repressive. As Mitchell says, life at court consists of the same endless round of activities, of formal dinners, tiresome monologues, and a tournament nearly every week, in which the fights are all alike. Well, Hank soon freshens up the fight scene. When we first meet him at Warwick Castle in the present day of the 19th century, he shows the narrator the ancient hauberk of Sir Sagramore, 
and points out what is apparently the only evidence of his adventures, a bullet hole in the chainmail. Hank asks the narrator, You know about the transmigration of souls? Do you know about transposition of epochs and bodies? This narrator is apparently Twain himself, who had visited Warwick Castle in 1872. Here we are at the beginning of the book, but the end of the story. This old, dreamy man is like the Arthurians, lost in time, far more lost than he ever was as a Connecticut in King Arthur's court. Unlike his younger self, he has rejected the linear reality, choosing to live on in Warwick Castle among relics. And soon, like Falstaff, Hank dies in bed, babbling of green fields, of Arthur, England, lost in a dream of the past. I call him old, but actually it is not clear whether Hank has only just awoken back in the 19th century, or if he awoke from his 13th century slumber some time ago. Perhaps he returned to Connecticut, but found himself too changed to call it home. Either way, by age, training or enchantment, he has ceased to be a Connecticut Yankee, and is instead an Arthurian. We don't realise at first what a transformed man we are dealing with, how he has become not merely a shadow of his former self, but everything he used to detest. Having given up on progress, he reaches hopelessly back into the past, hoping perhaps for another stroke of magic that will take him back. Portia Fermanis writes that Hank's eventual reversal of dream and reality suggests that however technologically advanced and progressive a society, annihilating a belief in magic and dreams is counterproductive. Do you want to, I, I feel like we've been all over the place on this one. Do you want to give a brief rundown on the plot before we start giving away any more plot details? Sure. So um, Hank receives a knock on the head and finds himself. Who knocks him on the head? Um, I've forgotten. Who a, knocks him on the a, head? A man called Hercules. Oh, yeah. <laughs> smacks him over the head with a crowbar. And he is biffed back to Arthurian England, uh, almost immediately sentenced to death. <laughs> At which point, with um, a bit of quick thinking, he decides to uh, tell King Arthur, in in tradition of a a civilized explorer reaching native lands or less civilized lands, uh, I will I will turn the sun off because I know when it's going to be an eclipse. It's always a better, useful. Yeah useful near eclipse time when this kind of thing happens apparently you know it happened to columbus i think it's just it's generally historical assholes who mm. use ab abuse science to make themselves appear like gods but can you imagine the feeling if you actually landed on an eclipse day you actually pulled it and off you could, yeah and you actually pulled it off i mean you can't begrudge anyone if they actually ever really did that tintin did it i think Tintin sure did it. A Tintin book. The um, Curse of the Black Sun. Oh, wow. There you go. It came to my mind, Hank tells us, in the nick of time, how Columbus or Cortez, or one of those people, played an eclipse as a saving trump once, on some savages, and I saw my chance. I could play it myself now, and it wouldn't be any plagiarism either, because I should get it in nearly a thousand years ahead of those parties. Kelly Driscoll writes of this scene that Hank's recollection of this symbolic moment of early contact between the old and new worlds offers not only a pragmatic solution to his immediate predicament, but also an inspirational paradigm of cultural ascendancy. In claiming the power to blot out the sun and smother the whole world in the dead blackness of night, he emulates the deific stance of a celebrated European explorer, using his scientific understanding of the physical universe to manipulate and control an ignorant, primitive audience. 
a Connecticut Yankee was published years before America started to engage in conquest of other countries, before it began to establish itself as a world power. Twain was yet to declare that he was an anti-imperialist, and in fact, according to Henry Nash Smith, the years during which he was working on a Connecticut Yankee were a period when his patriotism, or rather his jingoistic nationalism, reached a peak of intensity. There is today but one civilization in the world, Twain said, and it is not yet 30 years old. And while his patriotism in the novel springs from an urge to defend the supposed cultural inferiority of America and mock the decrepit institutions of Europe, references to the likes of Cortez and Columbus indicate Hank's own underlying imperial tendencies. Gregory M. Fitzer has suggested that a Connecticut Yankee is a variant on the westernised adventure tale, saying, By the 1880s, the American West may have become too stale and predictable a locale for meaningful presentation of extraordinary themes, but medieval England provided new, fresh ground for such literary demonstrations. While genteel Americans preferred to think of the American West as a region capable of reform, nearly everyone was willing to believe that the medieval world was a shockingly crude and inescapably brutal place. We can therefore see Hank's idealistic plans for reform as a strange transposition of manifest destiny, away from the great plains of North America to the green and pleasant world of merry old England. According to Will Hasty, Twain's novel with its singular Arthurian idiom capably encompasses the most crucial cultural tensions of its own time, notably those between individual self-determination and imperialism, tensions that had been at the forefront of ongoing discussions of enlightenment and presciently anticipates many of their most consequential outcomes or final solutions in the 20th century and our own. Long before the resulting massacre of Hank's own final solutions, he tells us he is well aware of the trappings of power. Unlimited power is the ideal thing when it is in safe hands. The despotism of heaven is the one absolutely perfect government. An earthly despotism would be the absolutely perfect earthly government if the condition were the same, namely the despot, the perfectest individual of the human race, and his lease of life perpetual. But as a perishable perfect man must die and leave his despotism in the hands of an imperfect successor, an earthly despotism is not merely a bad form of government, it is the worst form that is possible. But even before he says this, we have had a warning of the cataclysm he is to bring about. Right at the start of the novel, clapped in irons, he instinctively homogenises his fellow prisoners, thinking of them as amoral and unimaginative savages. The rascals. They have served other people so in their day. It being their own turn, now they were not expecting any better treatment than this. So their philosophical bearing is not an outcome of mental training, intellectual fortitude, reasoning. It is mere animal training. They are white Indians. It's hard not to strategize along with Hank and try to work out where he went wrong, what decisions he could have made in order to cause the least harm. Here, in an alternate timeline, he might have sided with those common unfortunates. But instead, as Kelly Driscoll writes, he rejects them as others, alien and inferior. Significantly, Twain uses the passive voice to signal this change in Hank's perspective. The thought was forced upon me, he says, suggesting that his observation grounded in 19th century Anglo-American ethnocentrism, is somehow irresistible or incontrovertible. Yeah, so he, he immediately sets his sights on the church and wizards. 
yeah as you know the next next to be taken down a peg yeah so he makes a makes a bomb there are some questions about how he gets all his materials he gets a telephone awfully quickly um, yeah he does doesn't he i mean coming from an age where there is a telephone doesn't necessarily mean you'd be able to reinvent one no it's like it's, it's like if if we were to go back in time now yeah. <laughs> would you be able to make a mobile phone with 14th century materials? Would you even be able to make a rudimentary landline phone? Never mind it. I'm not 100% sure I... how to make um, a pulley. Yeah. You no. know, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm not the, the most crafty man. I'm not sure I'd be able to make the things they were making back then. What, like a wall? I wouldn't be able to make a wall that stood up <laughs> properly. No, me neither. No. no, I would. I'd go back immediately, get the eclipse wrong, fail yeah. to make a telephone, and then I'd be burnt at the stake. That would be the most embarrassing way to die, wouldn't it? With your like hand outstretched, pointing at the sun that's doing nothing. It's gonna happen. Ah. Wait a minute. <laughs> I got there a year early. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love the descriptions of Merlin. It's a completely different Merlin from the last time we talked about him. Merlin's an um, asshole in this one. It is. He is quite interestingly written. You you never quite Hank fingers him for a fraud and a charlatan, but you never quite know if Merlin actually is a charlatan, like a well, knowing one. Well, or... but there's some bits at the end mm. where you sort of have to question whether or not he is magic or not. Yeah, but I think I think he the way he's written, he believes in himself. Hank is not immune to the charms of Merlin, and neither is the narrator Twain himself who acknowledges the intoxicating enchantment of Merlin and his legend. After meeting Hank at Warwick Castle, the narrator steeps himself in a dream of the olden time, dipping into the pages of Mallory's enchanting book till he slept and dreamed again. Hank becomes Merlin's sworn enemy, despising the wizard's lulling and suppressive power. But when the Yankee first appears to Twain, he seems to have become something of an enchanted figure himself, given to drift away imperceptibly out of this world and time and into some remote era, an old forgotten country. And so he gradually wove such a spell about me that I seemed to move among the spectres and shadows and dust and mould of a grey antiquity. Having arrived in King Arthur's court and been made a prisoner, Hank witnesses Merlin tell the story of the Lady and the Lake. This tale is clearly one Merlin is fond of retelling, and we get the impression he may be exaggerating his own role. Droning on, the old wizard sends his audience to sleep and prompts the page Clarence to curse him. Merlin, the mighty liar and magician, perdition singe him for the weariness he worketh with his one tale. But that men fear him for that he hath the storms and lightnings and all the devils that be in hell at his beck and call, they would have dug his entrails out these many years ago to get at that tale and squelch it. But interestingly, as Bruce Mitchelson notes, it takes Hank a little time to endorse Clarence's low opinion of Merlin, for the Yankee finds the magician's story simply and beautifully told. Before long, however, Hank recognises Merlin as an enemy of truth, peace and progress in the Lost Land, and observes that the big miracles, the ones that have won him his reputation, always had the luck to be performed when nobody but Merlin was present. Once again, Twain demonstrates the dreamy intoxication of these stories when they fall on fresh ears, even as he also shows the paralysing reality of them in repetition, with the snoring audience of the round table so deeply asleep that rats nibble cheese perched on the king's head. After realising how the hypnotising effect of such legends can be used to stagnate a culture, 
Hank's attack on Merlin and magic begins in earnest. Posing as a rival, more talented magician, Hank undermines his opponent's reputation and exposes him as a charlatan. I've known Merlin 700 years, he says. He has died and come alive again 13 times, travelled under a new name every time. Smith, Jones, Robinson, Jackson, Peters, Haskins, Merlin. A new alias every time he turns up. Hank takes joy in beating Merlin at his own game, besting him in shows of magic, brought about by his superior technological advantage. A fireworks show relegates Merlin to the kingdom's number two wizard, and Hank's use of a telephone allows him to expose and humiliate another fraudulent magician. You have lived in the woods, Hank tells him, and lost much by it. I use incantations myself, as this good brotherhood are aware, but only on occasions of moment. In posing as a wizard himself, Hank is of course also tricking the population, and is as dependent as Merlin on effect and performances of power. His use of machinery for his own effects bears an interesting connection to one version of the myths of Merlin, who was said to have transported the stones of Stonehenge from Ireland, not using magic, but engines. Merlin gets the last laugh over Hank, putting him into a sleep that will last for centuries. His one example, if the Yankee story isn't merely a dying man's dream, of genuine magic. For the most part, the question of whether Merlin is the real deal, an authentic but intermittently successful magician, or just an insane charlatan, is left open. As Bruce Mitchelson says, Merlin has so muddled the truth with fantasies and exaggerations that he can no longer recognise reality. Confounding not only the world and the truth, but himself as a storyteller, Merlin is literary romance at its destructive, self-destructive worst. Twain had a special loathing for this sort of literature, the work of figures like Tennyson and Walter Scott, saying, A curious exemplification of the power of a single book for good or harm is shown in the effects wrought by Don Quixote, and those wrought by Ivanhoe. The first swept the world's admiration for the medieval chivalry silliness out of existence, and the other restored it. Scott's restoration of chivalric silliness was so effective that it spread across America. The Sir Walter disease, as Twain called it, made every gentleman in the South a major or a colonel or a general or a judge, and made these gentlemen value these bogus decorations. Twain saw his genuine and wholesome civilization of the 19th century at war and commingled with the absurd romanticism and sham civilization honoured by Scott. More than a literary crime, this did real and lasting harm. Scott and his enchantments, as Twain wrote, checks the wave of progress and even turns it back, sets the world in love with dreams and phantoms, with decayed and swinish forms of religion, with decayed and degraded forms of government with the sillinesses and emptinesses, sham grandeurs, sham gauds, and sham chivalries of a brainless and worthless, long-vanished society. As for Tennyson, he actually appears in the novel in a manner of speaking, not in the actual text of a Connecticut Yankee, but rather in its accompanying illustrations by Dan Beard, who used Tennyson as his model for Merlin. Twain was so delighted with Beard's work that he wrote to him, "'Hold me under everlasting obligations.' There are a hundred artists who could have illustrated any other of my books, but only one who could illustrate this one. It was a lucky day that I went netting for lightning bugs and caught a meteor. Live forever. Beard drew other characters from real life as well, including notorious robber baron Jay Gould as the slave driver, Annie Russell as Sandy and Sarah Bernhard as the page boy Clarence, adding a Shakespearean whiff of homoeroticism quite encouraged by the text. 
The illustration labelled Supreme Head of the Church and some other heads is represented by Henry VIII touting the heads of two of his wives. The church and the monarchy are the two pillars of power Hank identifies as standing in his way. The truth was, he says, the nation as a body was in the world for one object and one only, to grovel before king and church. Twain described monarchy as the grotesquest of all the swindles ever invented by man, and was watching with satisfaction as the monarchy of Brazil collapsed in 1889. He wrote to Sylvester Baxter, I wish I might live 50 years longer. I believe I should see the thrones of Europe selling at auction for old iron. Twain studied the history and character of his period in books like W.E.H. Lecky's History of European Morals from Augustus to Charlemagne and A History of England in the 18th Century, as well as George Stranding's The People's History of the British Aristocracy. And whilst he was composing his Yankee, he was also reading Thomas Carlyle's The French Revolution, which he called one of the greatest creations that ever flowed from a pen. It can only have urged on Twain's anti-monarchical fervour, and as he sallied into King Arthur's court, heads were bound to roll. Juliet A. Traynor suggests a fascinating way Twain may have foreshadowed his two targets, the church and the monarchy. Throughout the novel are interspersed lengthy quotations from Mallory, the first of which is the tale of how Sir Lancelot slew two giants. After cleaving their heads asunder, he frees the ladies they were keeping prisoner, and then assists Sir Kay, who is outnumbered by pursuing enemies, by swapping armour with Kay and drawing away his pursuers. In response to this passage, Traynor asks, Is it too much to read in the two giants, the two mighty powers, the Catholic Church and monarchy, which the boss hoped to overthrow? Is not Sir Lancelot really Mark Twain, wielding his sword against the institutions of the established church and king? Just as Sir Lancelot is waging battles dressed in Sir Kay's armour, so Twain is waging his battles in the garb of the boss. The boss, I should say, is the title Hank gives himself. The giants are well-armed with horrible clubs. They are formidable opponents, but they have one obvious weakness. They leave their heads unarmoured, which Lancelot swiftly and brutally takes advantage of. Similarly, Hank says of the king that he wasn't a very heavyweight intellectually. In fact, he says that among the round table, there did not seem to be brains enough to bait a fishhook with. As Traynor writes, The boss considers neither the church nor monarchy well-armed in their heads, for they are both so easily duped by Merlin. Both the church and monarchy are gullible, as are their subjects. It is also noteworthy that the giants are together when Lancelot meets them, for throughout the Yankee they are often attacked in their interrelationship. Just as Merlin has deceived himself, so too have the power centres of the church and the monarchy. But the giants Twain attempts to slay with what Traynor calls his sword of irreverence at times seem to have more than two heads. Bruce Mitchelson writes that the novel is an act of war against every conceivable enemy of personal integrity and an attempt to name and overthrow the pernicious force that sustains them all. Twain's resentment here encompasses the entrapping stasis of religious practice, of political and social institutions, of modes of warfare, of manners, dress, and the conventions and confinements of narrative. One convention that surprised critics is Hank's falling in love with a wandering damsel, Alisand, who he refers to as Sandy. As Mitchelson says, when she first encounters Hank, Sandy too has mislaid the truth in her own stories. Her detachment from reality seems as complete as as Merlin's. Despite being appalled by the myopic Arthurians, Hank marries Sandy and has a child with her, perhaps an indication of the creeping enchantment of this lost land weaving its spell around Hank. 
Either way, he recognises that he and his wife will never be the same. Oh, it was no use to waste sense on her. Training, training is everything. Training is all there is to a person. We speak of nature. It is folly. There is no such thing as nature. What we call by that misleading name is merely heredity and training. We have no thoughts of our own, no opinions of our own. They are transmitted to us, trained into us. All that is original in us can be covered up and hidden by the point of a cambric needle. All the rest being atoms contributed by and inherited from a procession of ancestors that stretches back a billion years to the Adam clam or grasshopper or monkey from whom our race has been so tediously and ostentatiously and unprofitably developed. As you can probably tell, Hank soon realises the futility of trying to deprogram people. The world he finds himself in is hardwired to resist progress. It's not just Hank who's stuck in the past. Old habit of mind, he says, is one of the toughest things to get away from in the world. It transmits itself like physical form and feature, and for a man in those days to have an idea that his ancestors hadn't had would have brought him under suspicion of being illegitimate. Twain ridicules worship of the past with a sublime bit of nonsense that I want to share with you. Hank is attempting to promote a candidate of his choosing into a high-ranking position in King Arthur's army, a low-born but Hank-educated man who might inject the administration with a rogue element of democracy. However, despite his candidate's comprehensive capability and intelligence, he is rejected on grounds of being a weaver. Instead, an illiterate mollusk of high birth is favoured, as he meets the standard of having at least four generations of nobility. The examination goes as follows. Name, so please you, Pertipole, son of Sir Pertipole, Baron of Barley Mash. Grandfather? Also Sir Pertipole, Baron of Barley Mash. Great-grandfather? The same name and title. Great-great-grandfather? We had none, worshipful sir, the line failing before it had reached so far back. I love the silliness and neatness of that image, a bloodline failing before it reached backwards enough into the past. Perfectly encapsulating this barren mash of the same people, with the same names going nowhere, and then add in the irony of it being said in a room that contains Hank, a man whose line reaches in both directions, but is the most illegitimate man in the kingdom on account of his numerous fresh ideas. Only a backwards culture could celebrate a heritage demonstrating zero growth. As a patriot of a young country, Twain was fed up with the snootiness that came with English culture, with its proud and magnificent history. It bred in its writers a feeling of superiority over the young Yanks, and Twain was particularly annoyed by writers like Matthew Arnold, whose book Civilization in the United States Twain derided as superficial polish. Arnold's countryman baffled Twain, who said what a curious admixture of Kerr and Lyon is the English character. Kerr because, despite their occasional bravery in the face of opposition, the English remained droopingly subservient to their monarch. It's no surprise to discover that American readers of the Yankee were on the whole a lot more delighted than the English. Sylvester Baxter of the Boston Sunday Herald was thrilled by what he called a most audacious rollicking around among the dusty bric-a-brac of chivalry, whilst a pearl-clutching reviewer for the London Daily Telegraph wrote that an attack on the ideals associated with King Arthur is a coarse pandering to that passion for irreverence which is at the basis of a great deal of Yankee wit. 
Defending the stories of Arthur, the reviewer went on to ask, Will this shrine in human souls be destroyed because a Yankee scribe chooses to fling pellets of mud upon the high altar? The faintly hysterical Puritanism masks an uglier and still more ridiculous national distaste. Loving one maiden only and cleaving to her must seem too high-toned in the States, where there are many facilities for ready divorce. Twain peppered his text with taunts at the English, some of which may be lost on us today. As Howard G. Bateshold writes, The nick of time rescue of Hank and the king by the arrival of the cavalry, Lancelot and his 500 knights on high-wheeled bicycles, provided an additional contemporary jab at the English, very likely based on the newspaper reports in 1888 of the attempts to introduce the bicycle into the military manoeuvres of certain British volunteer companies. As one historian has said in an impressive understatement, the high bicycle did not lend itself well to such uses. Twain was a gifted performer, which you can well imagine reading the acerbic, epigrammatical style of his writing. It was during a reading tour in 1884 that Twain's friend George Washington Cable bought him a copy of Mallory's Mort D'Arthur, from which Twain started to make notes for his Yankee. Adverts for Twain's lectures customarily read, Doors open at 7.30, the trouble will begin at 8. His friend Edmund Clarence Stedman, having read a draft of the Yankee, rebuked Twain for the excesses of his performative style. Despite thinking that Twain had let his whole nature loose at the prime of his powers, he made the point that when you let yourself loose, tis somewhat like a stallion just out of the paddock, before picking up Twain on some of his early Mark Twainish exaggerations, the turning of knights into four million pounds of meat, as well as lesser crimes like the misspelling of Thomas Mallory. Hank is also something of a troublemaking performer. Portia Fermanis notes that over the course of the novel, Hank assumes a number of social roles, but it is notable that these roles are all essentially performative. He survives in Arthurian England because of his ability to manipulate an audience. Well, I, I thought it, I thought it was really really funny. There was some some bits in the in the novel which I thought were fantastic. The fact that he um, uses knights as advertising, yes. I thought was uh, <laughs> the fact that they're going around with. Um, adverts for brushing teeth on and stuff and soap is great another um time machine similarity was he there's a very similar turn of phrase um he describes the inhabitants of the arthurian world he finds himself very similarly as the traveler in the time machine does as sort of innocent childlike numpties yep um and he's pretty scathing of them I think he he manages to, without, you know, just by doing his whole modern man in the past thing, he manages to really upset Merlin. And I think that just that just sets the tone where he is, he's a bit of an arrogant guy. But I love how he is, uh, he doesn't dwell on being so far out of time. He, he, he just he turns his mind quite quickly to survival, first of all, but then turning a profit and industrialising. It's, it's quite funny how how concentrated he is on, you know. Oh, he's um, everyone up to date. He's a firearms manufacturer. He's a he's a yeah. red blooded American capitalist who's going to run and gun and take your land. We have a brief overview of Hank's life before he abruptly gets whacked back in time. He hails from Hartford, Connecticut, where Mark Twain was living as he wrote the novel, and usefully he has acquired a great technical proficiency. 
I went over to the great arms factory and learned my real trade. Learned all there was to it. Learned to make everything. Guns, revolvers, cannon, boilers, engines, all sorts of labour-saving machinery. One of the funniest aspects of the novel is how rapidly and successfully Hank adjusts to his supernatural transposition. No sooner has he landed in Arthurian Britain than he's rubbing his hands together and marvelling at the opportunities it presents for a man of brains. Some of his surreptitious schemes for making knighthood absurd are born out of the wizardry of good advertising. For example, he dresses one knight up in a stovepipe hat instead of a helmet and sends him out to defeat other wandering knights and kit them out the same way. As you would expect of the boss, along with plans to overhaul society, we get plenty of career advice from a self-made man. As a matter of business, it was a good idea to get the notion around that the thing was difficult. Many a small thing has been made large by the right kind of advertising. As time goes on, his common sense and his business sense destabilises the framework of the society he finds himself in. As Portia Fermanis writes, Refusing to quest for the Holy Grail because there is no monetary recompense, Hank reduces to the economic all the spiritual, moral and aesthetic virtues to which chivalry aspired. The incompatibility of Hank's technology and the beliefs of the age lead ultimately to the carnage of the finale. As Gregory M. Fitzer writes, the fate of these Arthurian cowboys and Indians is the same as that of their Western analogues on the American frontier. They refuse to submit to technologies packaged as tools of progress. A few years before the publication of his Yankee, Twain had published Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs to great success. Twain admired Grant and may have based aspects of Hank's story on the former president and general's experience in the Civil War. Scott Darimple notes that Hank's use of hiding in caves in the build-up to the Battle of the Sandbelt is similar to non-combatants' use of caves during the siege at Vicksburg. Darimple goes on to say that in many ways Hank is also a superhuman likeness of General Grant, leading the Republic in the battle against the archaic, slaveholding, non-technological South. Hank and Grant are similar in some very specific ways. The terms of surrender that Hank at one point intends to offer the knights resemble those originally offered by Grant at Vicksburg. Hank orders the English knights to surrender unconditionally to the Republic. Grant was famous for his demand of unconditional surrender, which was considered uncivilised by Confederate generals. Grant's impassive descriptions of violence in his memoirs is also echoed by Hank's recounting his own war experiences. After hurling a bomb at some oncoming knights, he says... It resembled a steamboat explosion on the Mississippi, and during the next 15 minutes we stood under a steady drizzle of microscopic fragments of knights and hardware and horseflesh. Hank's great project ends in the massacre of 25,000 knights, who are fried by electrically charged fences. We have sensed disaster coming, even despite Hank's best intentions. As Henry Nash Smith says, magic, of course, can be black as well as white, and along with the implication that the Yankees' machines will work miracles for the good of mankind, the reader notices strong hints that they are potentially a menace. In an often quoted passage in chapter 10, for example, the Yankee compares his hidden factories to a serene volcano standing innocent with its smokeless summit in the blue sky and giving no sign of the rising hell in its bowels. Portia Fermanis points out other less overt omens, such as Hank's attempts to control the 6th century economy, which, as Fermanis writes, draw attention to the fundamental division between his republican rhetoric and practical tyranny, and hence to one of the fundamental problems of capitalist society, 
the economic policies he employs are in fact free trade neo-imperialist strategies dressed up in the language of enlightenment and emancipation. In the aftermath of the Battle of the Sandbelt, Hank is stabbed by a wounded knight and Clarence assumes the role of narrator. The sudden silence of Hank implicitly acknowledges his failure and perhaps shame at the enormity of what he has done. It is a failure so total that it undoes every prior accomplishment. In the end, progress fails and enchantment wins the war. For as Will Hasty writes, perhaps somewhat paradoxically, Twain's Yankee ends in nearly the same place as Tennyson's Idols, with a cataclysmic struggle that marks the end of order and of an ideal that endeavours to place force in the service of a higher principle. Because I've not read, have you read any more Mark Twain? Yeah. How does this, is, is this standard for him in terms of scathing satire? It's seen as a bit of a hinge book from okay. the uh, cheerful early stuff, the evergreen stuff, mm-hmm. and the darker, more um, ragged satire to come. A Connecticut Yankee is a mid-career novel, yet Mark Twain wrote it hoping it would be my swan song, my retirement from literature permanently. I am writing it for posterity only, my posterity. It is to be my holiday amusement for six days every summer the rest of my life. Like Hank, Twain was masterminding a technological revolution of his own. In 1881, he had invested $5,000 in a project developed by the inventor James W. Page. It was a typesetting machine, something Twain thought would transform the printing industry. By 1894, he had put more than $200,000 towards perfecting a prototype of the machine and effectively leveraged his publishing company against Page's success. Instead, the project was a failure and it left Twain heavily in debt and forced back into writing for a living. Years earlier, as he was coming to the end of writing The Yankee, Twain's worries were already evident. He wrote of the book that, I want to finish it the day the machine finishes. And a week ago, the closest calculations for that indicated October 22nd. But experience teaches me that the calculations will misfire as usual. Lee Clark Mitchell suggests that Hank's suicidal delirium at the end of the novel suggests something more than Twain's increasing nihilism about industrial capitalism or American technology or progress more generally understood. It suggests as well a troubled self-consciousness about the conflicting claims of narrative and history as they intersect with both his own deepest desires for mastery and his commensurate fears of failure. It reminds me a lot, even though I read I read this before I watched this, um, uh, Princess Bride. Oh, really? You know, I've never seen The Princess Bride. Oh, I know I should. Brilliant. But um, yeah. one of the things about Princess Bride, so it's another meta-narrative where mm. it's a, a child being told a bedtime story. Mm. But it's made in the 80s and it's 80s humour. So it's mm. got the way everyone talks and the jokes everyone makes are straight out of 80s, but it's got this sort of fantasy setting. Mm. And I feel that in this book in the sense that you might have the backdrop but the structure itself is very much like a late 19th century book. Like the way people talk, the turn of phrase, the way it's written, he's not gone out of his way to make it, uh, you know, he's, he's not imitating period. He's using it as like a, you know, like a, what's the an American restaurant's medieval fare, which I bet can trace its lineage back to this book, which <laughs> is just like, go eat and watch people joust. Like it's yeah. almost like it's sort of, Disneyland version of King Arthur. I think that I think that's what's unusual actually about a, a time travel narrative is that he is a real uh, domineering influence. 
I know lots of time travel stories about what you accidentally make happen in the past, but it's usually they're observers. You know, the traveler in the time machine is is a an observer. We go and see the future. Yeah. Whereas here, it's like get there immediately, tr- start screwing everything up, fucking with everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so he he transforms them into nineteenth century uh, Americans. <laughs> Speaking of which, I, I the really interesting theme throughout it uh it's impossible to to kind of not notice how immediately uh shocked and appalled he is by slavery yes which is kind of odd because you know it's it's a 19th century american narrator but the well mark mark twain's a mark twain's definitely an abolitionist but to be in arthurian england and being looking at you know dungeon fodder mm-hmm. who were just background in arthurian text right you don't think yeah. of people like that as slaves and he's he's disgusted by it at the beginning of the novel we saw how hank instantly recoiled from his fellow prisoners and saw them as savages white indians and yet hank is fiercely opposed to slavery outraged by the menial existence of those subservient to the nobility if the baron would sleep unvexed he says the freeman must sit up all night after his day's work and whip the ponds to keep the frogs quiet. But however appalled he is by the fact of slavery, he also cannot stomach his disgust at its effects. Observing the depth to which this people had been sunk in slavery, he says, their entire being was reduced to a monotonous dead level of patience, resignation, dumb, uncomplaining acceptance of whatever might befall them in this life. Their very imagination was dead. When he can say that of a man, he has struck bottom, I reckon. There is no lower deep for him. Twain had read Charles Ball's Slavery in the United States, and when Hank notes with despair the alacrity with which this oppressed community had turned their cruel hands against their own class in the interest of their common oppressor, he compares them to the poor whites of the South, who sided with the very slave lords that mistreated them. But Twain was thinking of other forms of slavery too, writing around the time that there are in Connecticut, at this moment and in all countries, children and disagreeable relatives chained in cellars, all sores, welts, worms and vermin. And while Hank laments the poor whites of Arthurian Britain failing to turn against their oppressors, we cannot miss the fact that his own resistance to humanising the oppressed is mirrored gruesomely in the aftermath of the final battle. Of course, we could not count the dead, Hank says because they did not exist as individuals, but merely as homogenous protoplasm, with alloys of iron and buttons. Bruce Mitchelson writes that the novel, which began in a dream of confinement, ends in a vista of homogenous protoplasm, a grotesquely apt antithesis, absolute human formlessness set against the dream of human fixity. In a Connecticut Yankee, dynamite represents the kinesthetic return to that one microscopic atom that is me, the spectacular, instantaneous negation of feudalism, the established church, modern civilization, and the trained, conditioned, armor-laden, deluded self-everything that threatens me, confines it, frustrates its return to a pure and supremely free condition. No, I I really enjoyed this, and it's a a totally different kind of comic Arthurian take to Sword in the Stone. Oh, yeah. Which is kind of writes from inside the Arthur legends. Where yeah, this one doesn't pull any punches and the, the climax of the book is a, a massacre of thousands of knights with a Gatling gun. Yeah, which, I mean, because that, that feels like a World War One thing. Yeah. Right? Um, and But this is 1889. Well, remember that the, the British were at this moment pioneering 
mowing down people with Gatling guns in Africa. So I'm not sure it was, I, I, I don't think he was prophesizing anything. I think that was happening. I just don't think he realized that it would probably define, you know, the next generation. It does feel like a book out of all time. It does. I would, if I didn't know when it was written, I would not have pegged it as having been written in 1889. But I also think that um, I can I can understand why the British at the time took it as an attack on their heritage. Because mm. I think this was still, still heyday of empire. I'm assuming so. a lot of the British character was based on Arthur and destiny and God-given rights and stuff. And then this mm. uppity American has <laughs> written himself into the canon, basically. Yeah. And, you know, made fun of how ridiculous their ancestry is. What I find that, that kind of ironic about that is there's obviously so much talk about Americans not having much ancestry and not having folklore and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And yet the English are sort of the same. The English are notably low on, you know, national mythology. That's what Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were so passionate about. They wanted to, to create one. Yeah. So you can tell why people were rattled because Arthur is literally the only thing, <laughs> the only sort of real bedrock of English uh, mythology and yeah. legend. And he's Welsh. <laughs> and he's Welsh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do find it funny. It's such a trampling novel. Oh, yeah. I, re I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was funny. In a way that I doubt many other books from 1889 would be these days. And I think it is that complete lack of respect which makes it funny yeah i mean in terms of our arthurian canon this is a strong recommend for anyone oh, definitely. who hasn't, hasn't yet read connecticut yankee so it's it's weird it's i think it's a known book but i don't think it would ever be you know if you were to name three mark twain books i'm not so sure it would be you know in those top three Funnily enough, it's probably the same for John Steinbeck, whose King Arthur book is, by a lot of Americans, I think anyway, um, kind of forgotten. Certainly would never get mentioned in his, his most famous works. Yeah. Um, even though he considered it one of his, his, his crowning... Well, he wanted it to be one of his crowning achievements. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything more to add to that one? I think that's... Uh... No, I think it's definitely the one, one we've talked about so far that I enjoyed the most, I will say. Yeah. And still holds up. It does still hold up, definitely. Cool. Well, um, I don't know uh, what's next, Arthurwise, but I'm enjoying the the such d the different portrayals of Merlin we're getting. Yeah. Ne next up, He's... we're going to um, analyze. Do you remember the um, back in the day, Microsoft Word used to have those 3D helpers. Oh yes. One yeah. of them. Was Merlin. And Merlin was one of them. Yeah. yeah. We're going to do going to do a, a three-hour analysis of. Microsoft Word Merlin. Merlin was the most fun. I think. He was the most fun. He was also an asshole. He was a bit of a prick. <laughs> <laughs> stupid, stupid 3D bastard. Did he surf on a piece of parchment? He did, and he vanished into his yeah. hat. Yeah, yeah. Stupid prick. <laughs> Those were the days when that was enough. Just to... there's nothing funnier than making than ripping the piss out of a a really early 3D. Helper from Microsoft <laughs> Word 1998. Yeah, we're on the button. <laughs> Only slightly less of a dated reference than a book written in 1889. 
And that's about everything for today, folks. Thank you very much for listening. Um, if you want to listen to more episodes on works relating to King Arthur, we've done episodes on T.H. White's The Sword in the Stone, Gawain and the Green Knight. We've done um, an, an episode on the medieval poem, The Alliterative Mort Arthur. And uh, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, do so because we've got plenty of other Arthurian texts in the pipeline. Um, that's all for today, though. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Thank you.